Welcome and thanks for listening to this message from City Bridge Community Church. Our heart at City Bridge is to call all people to be fully devoted followers of Christ. To learn more about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. Now, here's the message. All right, well, hey, good morning, City Bridge. We are kicking off a brand new series called The Christmas Tree. I am fighting off a little bit of a bug, so if I am coughing or you sound abnormal, that's because I feel abnormal. But on the note of Christmas trees, who, uh, by show of hands, has their Christmas tree up already in the room? Okay, in the room, most of us who do Christmas trees are divided into a few camps. So there is the real Christmas tree. Who are all my real Christmas tree people? Okay. Smaller, smaller percentage than I would have thought. Who are the people, if you're a real Christmas person, anyone who actually goes with their family and cuts down a Christmas tree every year? Okay, two, man, three, all right, nice. I mean, that makes sense. Uh, I don't, we were real Christmas tree people forever. We never did the go cut it down, kind of for the same reason we don't churn our own butter. Just because feels less efficient. We just get it at Home Depot, but... Anyone, anyone a frosted Christmas tree, like the, the tree that's frosted, kind of the frosted mini wheats version of the Christmas tree? Two back there? What is it? Flocked. Oh, man, I had no idea. It was flocked. I, I have offended the four frosted people. Okay. Any, and then where, lastly, are all my fake Christmas tree people? Uh, the vast majority, clearly, what's funny is 80% of America does fake Christmas trees. I guess because it's even more efficient in time and cost savings wise. My family's done real Christmas trees for a long time. This is actually a real Christmas tree. All the other ones on the stage are fake Christmas trees. This one is real, just from Home Depot. No one went and cut it down other than someone connected to Home Depot, I guess. And that's why it's not lit up. But one thing people will say about a tree that is real is they'll say, hey, it's a, a living Christmas tree. And one thing that is undeniably and emphatically true about this tree is it is not living. Why do I say that? Well, because the moment it was cut from the roots, the source of life, it became no longer a living Christmas tree, but a dead Christmas tree. And given enough time, anyone who has a real Christmas tree knows that the effects of being cut off and disconnected from the source of light, its roots, you'll begin to see that. In other words, give this thing a few weeks. It may look pretty right now and all the branches hold up, but Give it another month, by January 5th or 6th or 7th, all these happy branches will be droopy and pine needles will have fallen off and it will be very evident it has been disconnected from the source of life. Now, what does it have to do with what we're going to talk about this morning? Well, really, for the next handful of weeks, we're going to talk about Jesus's family tree. And we've named it the Christmas tree because we're tracing through Jesus's family line. But what we're going to discover in Jesus's family tree, like every family tree, Just like when this tree was cut off from the source of life and death was introduced and it begins to decay, that's really a great analogy for what the Bible says happened to our world when sin was introduced. That the moment sin was introduced in the Garden of Eden, our world and every family tree that makes it up was disconnected from the source of life. And no matter how pretty things look and how pretty your Christmas family picture card is, given enough time and in our world around us, we see the effects that our world and every person has been disconnected from the source of life. And as we discover in the Bible, from beginning to end, God chasing after our world with the hopes and plan through Jesus to reconnect 
our world to the source of life. And we're going to discover that in Christ, and we know that through the gospel. But as I mentioned, every family tree was disconnected from the source of life when sin entered. Interestingly enough, including Jesus's. And Matthew chapter 1 is where we're going to read some verses, and then we're going to look at four different stories of four different people that make up the family tree of Jesus. Jesus, as we're going to see in a second, didn't just come for sinners. As it relates to his human family side, he came from sinners. And Matthew goes out of his way to highlight and point this out because the truth is every person who's ever lived is a broken sinner. And we'll discover more of what I mean when I say Matthew goes out of his way to highlight that. But this comes from Matthew chapter 1. If you have a Bible, you can flip open there, starting in verse 1, where Matthew is writing the genealogy of Jesus. Now, genealogies were a huge deal to Jewish people. And genealogies at the time when this was written, typically you would showcase and highlight the who's who of your family ancestry tree. You wouldn't want to go out of your way to highlight the broken branches of your family tree, just like you probably wouldn't if you were showcasing or doing a presentation on your ancestry.com family tree. But Matthew does just that. He highlights broken branches in the tree. And we're going to see why here in just a second, but it says this, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, we don't have enough time and didn't have as many weeks to go into this story, but even this would have been a scandalous story. Matthew wrote to a Jewish audience, they would have read, why would you go out of your way to include Tamar? Side note, why, what's the story of Tamar? It involved incest between Judah, who was Tamar's father-in-law, and Tamar dressing up like a prostitute and tricking him into sleeping with her. Matthew, why would you go out of your way to include that? He's not done. He says this, Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Of all the names in this list, I think Ram is my favorite. We need to bring Ram back. That's like just a nose tackle waiting to happen. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon, not Salmon. If Salmon was here, he'd say, I'm not a fish. It's Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And skip down to verse 16. It says, and Jacob eventually, finally, was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Why would Matthew, as he sets out to write his gospel, begin to include the genealogy of Jesus and go out of his way, it would seem, you don't need to include these people in these stories. Like, why would he do what is the opposite of what most of us do in today's modern life, if you remember back to dating, where you kind of wait to introduce your, your fiance or your girlfriend or your boyfriend to the crazy aspects of your family. In other words, you want to make sure that you're kind of pot committed before you showcase your crazy uncle or you introduce them to your sister or the you know, sibling in your life that's just kind of off a rocker. And if you can't think of the person in your family, because every family has them, that's just a little crazy you may be the person in your family who's a little crazy. It's just food for thought. 
But generally speaking, we kind of hesitate to introduce and bring them into that before we have some solidified relationship. And Matthew does just the opposite. He starts right from the jump, chapter one, the very interesting, or the very beginning verses of the book showcasing going out of his way to highlight the brokenness in Jesus's family tree. Because Matthew knew they were not just part of Jesus's family tree. In essence, they were the point of the story in the gospel Matthew was gonna spend the next 27 chapters writing. That Jesus came from broken people because all that exists in our world is broken people. And so of course, he would go out of his way to showcase the God who came for sinners, who also came from sinners. So we're gonna look at the family tree of Jesus the next four weeks and just look at four different stories. And this morning, I wanna look at a woman whose name was Rahab. And we see three aspects about God is transforming power in this story. But in order for us to fully understand it, we've gotta go back to Joshua chapter two. So as we're told, Solomon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. In Joshua chapter two, we're told about the story of Rahab. Now, you know some of it, I'm sure you remember some of it, but I just want us to look through at the details and see what was actually happening here. Maybe you're not familiar with the story. Let me set it up. Joshua chapter two, Joshua is a book that took place shortly after the death of Moses. So if you remember the story, nation of Israel is in bondage, that God shows up through Moses, goes to Pharaoh, says, hey, the Israelites need to be free, let my people go. You remember the movie, Prince of Egypt, greatest soundtrack of all time maybe. And Pharaoh says, no. God sends 10 different plagues. Eventually, Pharaoh allows the people to be set free. And the ocean is parted, they walk through, and then the ocean collapses on Pharaoh's army and they end up heading towards the promised land. Eventually, Moses is told that, hey, you're gonna pass and you're not gonna take the next generation into the promised land. I've got Joshua to do that. And Joshua is told by God, hey, you're gonna cross the Jordan River, go to this city called Jericho, and you're gonna march around it and you're gonna see the walls of Jericho collapse. This is kind of the offense that I want you to do. And so Joshua's told to do that. And he sends out a couple spies, which is where our story picks up. And we're introduced to the woman, Rahab. So Joshua chapter two says this. Now, let me make a side note about Jericho. Jericho at the time was known as one of the most fortified cities in the ancient world. There are writings of people who would travel great distances just to come see Jericho because it has these impenetrable walls that were 10 feet thick and then 27 feet high. This city that was known for being incredibly protected that had to have a confidence and those who lived there had a confidence that, hey, no one can penetrate or take down our city. Joshua and his men and really all of Israel is out camping in the woods and living in tents. And he sends two spies to collect some information about Jericho. And it says this in verse one, then Joshua secretly sent out two spies from the Israelite camp at Acacia Grove. He instructed them, scout out the land on the other side of the Jordan River, especially around Jericho. So the two men set out and came to a house of a prostitute named Rahab. We're gonna learn that she lived in a home that was built into the wall of the city. And they stayed the night there at this prostitute's home. But someone told the king of Jericho, some Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent orders to Rahab, bring out the men who have come into your house 
for they have come here to spy out the whole land. So somebody gives a knock at Rahab's door and they say, hey, we know that there's men in there, bring them out. Now you may be wondering, why don't they just barge in to her home and just take the men out? Well, if she's living in a brothel, the men would have known, hey, you never know who you're gonna find inside of there. So of course they probably were a little hesitant to just barge in and see who was in the prostitute's home. Now Rahab says, oh, they were here earlier, verse four, but I didn't know where they were from. They left town at dusk as the gates were about to close. Despite the fact that verse four, we're told she had hidden the men. I don't know where they are, but if you hurry, I bet you could probably catch up with them. When actually, verse six, she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them bundles beneath bundles of flax that she had laid out. So the king's men went looking for the spies along the road leading to the shallow crossings of the Jordan River. And as soon as the king's men had left, the gates shut. Before the spies went to sleep that night on the roof, Rahab went up to the roof to talk to them. So Rahab has these two spies from Israel show up in her house and there's a knock at the door and she hides them in and she ends up providing a decoy saying, oh yeah, they were here, but you know, they took off and I don't know where, it's probably hit an Airbnb somewhere else and they headed out of here. And then she goes up to the men that she had hidden and she says this on the roof. I know that the Lord has given you this land. She told them, we are all afraid of you. Everyone in the land is living in terror. For we have heard how the Lord made a dry path for you through the Red Sea when you left Egypt. And we know what you did to Sion and Og, the two Amorite kings east of the Jordan River, whose people you completely destroyed. No wonder our hearts have melted in fear. No one has the courage to fight after hearing such things. For the Lord your God is the supreme God of heavens and earth. That she, she says to the men, Ever since you guys showed up, there was a day where the Israelite army would have encamped in a distance and they saw this large gathering of people that were out there living in tents. And despite the fact that we are in this incredibly fortified city, everyone is living in terror because everyone thinks, or we think, and I believe that God has given you this land. Despite the fact that we live in the most fortified city and you're out there living in the woods, we believe that you're gonna take down, we don't know how, but I believe you are the true people of God and your God is the one true God. She's declaring an incredible act of faith. I mean, this woman who was a prostitute, which is not the highest profession or the most noble or admired profession. In fact, likely in that day, prostitution was associated or was associated with cultic religion that often you would get in because you're worshiping the Canaanite gods through prostitution rituals. And despite that, she says, I know your God is the one true God. And she's protecting the men because of that, which is why she says, now swear to me by the, your Lord that you will be kind to me and my family since I've helped you. Give me some guarantee that when Jericho is conquered, you will let me live along with my mother and father and brothers and sisters and their families. And the men said, we offer our own lives as a guarantee of your safety. If you don't betray us and you keep the promise, we will be kind to you and your home. And before they left, they said, hey, here is the... Uh, stipulations of how we can make sure that you're going to be saved. It says, we will bound by oath that we have taken. If you fall, we will bound ourselves by an oath. If you follow these instructions, when we come into the land, you must leave this scarlet rope hanging in your window through which you let us down. Take this red rope 
And from now until the time that we come into the land, make sure that your window is marked and covered by this rope that we're gonna climb down on, but this scarlet rope must be in your window. And make sure that all of your family members, your father, mother, brothers, all of them, must be here inside the house. If they leave the house, if they're not in this house, we cannot guarantee their safety. The thing that is required for us to guarantee you will be safe is make sure the scarlet rope remains in your window. She agreed to the deal and the men went back. They told Joshua that the people in the city are living in terror and they believe that God has given us the land. Now, we see a lot of things about God, but there's something I wanna highlight specifically as it relates to Rahab. The first aspect of God is we see he is a God who runs after people with labels. He's a God who runs after people with labels. Rahab had a label. It was Rahab, the prostitute. Over and over in the story, we're told that she's mentioned, in fact, all throughout the Bible, she's every time mentioned almost entirely, it is Rahab, the prostitute. She had a reputation. She wasn't known for being an incredibly pious or worthy person that she had chosen as her profession to sell her body in exchange for sex. That Rahab had a label. And despite that label, God runs after her, just like despite the labels that maybe we carry, not as openly, God still runs after us. She'd gotten into a prostitution and we're not told how, but generally speaking, that's not a profession that most little girls dream of doing when they grow up. Oftentimes there's abuse. Maybe there is some sort of desire to find your identity and validity and love in the arms of a person. Who knows, Talmudic or rabbinic tradition, Jewish tradition tells us that she was one of the four most beautiful women who had ever lived. And yet despite that, she finds herself selling her body for sex. Of all the people that you would think God would go after and that he would send these spies, because remember the assignment of the spies was just go spy out the land. And yet God has the spies randomly bump into this woman and spend the night because God is a God who runs after people with labels. Now, this is really good news for us because in the room, all of us have various labels. This is a label maker. It's a uh, thing that if you're organized in here, you probably have at least one of these. And it's an amazing thing. I haven't done a ton with it because organization is not really my strong suit, but it allows you to create different labels and to mark different things and put them on the outside. As I mentioned, all of us, maybe not as openly, but just like Rahab carried the label of prostitute, that had marked her life, the decisions that she had made, and the Bible over and over calls her Rahab, who was a prostitute. Some of us, whether we would openly acknowledge it, also carry different labels. Maybe it's a label of abused. Something happened in your past and you didn't deserve it, and it wasn't right, and it wasn't your fault. But you carry some portion of your heart, maybe a feeling of inadequacy, of brokenness, of shame, because of the abuse that took place. Maybe it's the label of, and I'm just depressed. It's just owning me. I don't feel like I have any of the joy that I once had in life. And circumstances feel like contribute to it. Maybe God is, I don't even know, but I just feel like carry such a heaviness. Maybe it's a label of a secret sin that nobody knows about. Label of porn addict. Label of adulterer. 
label of a relationship that you had no plans to get into or you never would have dreamed that you would have gotten into and yet you find yourself in that relationship and you feel a weightiness from that label. And the good news we see in the story of Rahab is despite whatever the label it is, maybe it's the label of failure. Like if you were really honest, you find yourself feeling like, I just feel like a failure. I should have been further along in where I am in my career. I thought I would have climbed more of the ladder and been able to compensate or care for my family better. Maybe I, you feel like a failure as a parent. That somewhere you wrestle with, maybe, maybe the reason my daughter or my son is a prodigal is something I did. Wrestle with feeling like a failure. Maybe it's a label of feeling divorced. That story of the marriage that you had didn't go the way you wish it would have. There's a lot of reasons that probably contributed to that, but you can find yourself feeling like a scarlet letter of divorce. And the good news from the story of Rahab and the family tree, and the reason why I think Matthew goes out of his way to highlight that God runs after people with labels is because no matter the label that any of us carry, good or bad, God runs after people with labels. And Matthew goes out of his way, I think, to include this woman with a label because Matthew also had a label. You may not know this, but Matthew who wrote the first chapter of the book of Matthew and all the chapters of the book of Matthew, Matthew spent the first part of his life and was marked by a label until he met Jesus. Matthew's label was not that of Matthew the prostitute, it was Matthew the tax collector. Now, a tax collector to us is not nearly as provocative. We think of probably the IRS, which is like, oh man, it's not my favorite group on the planet, but it's not nearly, I'm not hostile to them. And yet that's how Matthew and the people of Israel would have felt towards Matthew. A tax collector at that time had sold out his own people. He had bought the rights to tax and to take advantage of his fellow Israelites. In order to become a tax collector, you would have basically said, I am given up on the people of Israel. I, I don't believe in the God of Israel, which is why tax collectors were not allowed to go to synagogue. They were not allowed to go to the temple. They were not allowed to go worship because they had basically said, I am turning my back on my own people. And because of that, Matthew also got the benefit of enriching himself and abusing financially the people he lived with. He was an outcast, despite the fact that he can enrich himself. He would have never spoken to a rabbi because he would have not been allowed to go into temple until the day he met Jesus. So of course, Matthew, who had a label, would go out of his way to go, our God runs after people with labels like Rahab, like me, and like you. The moment happened when Matthew was sitting at his tax booth in Matthew chapter nine, and we're told that Jesus comes up and this rabbi that everybody's talking about, the rabbi that the word on the street is he may be the Messiah, he's doing all kinds of miracles. And he is a rabbi who then walks up to a guy that no one wanted to talk to, Matthew. And he says this, Matthew, as Jesus got up from there, he came to a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. And he said, follow me. Matthew got up and he followed him that Jesus accepts him and then he says, let's go to your house and eat there. Matthew knew 
the story of Rahab and the story of God chasing after labels firsthand. And he knew all the broken different aspects of Jesus's family tree were not just part of the story. They were the point of the story that he was about to write. But he saw firsthand, God chases after broken people because that's the only type of people there are. It's an amazing truth. God chases after Rahab. There were a lot of people in the city of Jericho he could have chased after. A lot of people he could have had those two men bump into. And yet, despite that, he goes after Rahab. Last night, the Shanes were here. And I remember uh, eight or nine years ago, my wife and I were about to buy our first house. And I remember talking with Shane Everett, who um, had recently bought homes. And I remember him telling me my, uh, the philosophy that we should embrace on how to buy a home. And so maybe you're in the season of looking to buy a home. This could be just free advice for you. It may be terrible advice of you, between you and the Lord, but I'm just gonna share it with you because it has an illustration point. He said, basically, hey, when I buy a house, here's what I think about it. I want the house that everybody else doesn't want. I want the house that has foundation issues. I want the house that has mold problems. I want the house that everybody else is like, oh, honey, we're out. Let's go, we're moving on. We want the house that is so messed up that it turns everybody else away. And then I walk into that house and I go, oh, mold, how much mold? How much is it gonna be to fix the mold? I find out that answer. Hey, how much is it gonna be to fix the foundation? I want the foreclosures. And he had done this multiple times. And so we like embrace that philosophy and, um, and you know, we're here for it. So that may not work for you. I'm not a, that's not really the point of the story. The point is in that scenario, he's going, I want the most broken. I want the thing that nobody else would ever want or the thing that most people are gonna be like, oh, I don't want to live in that. Or, you know, there's dead bodies in the other room. We've gotta get out of here. That's the one that I want. And in an interesting way, from beginning to end, it seems as though that's how God approaches humanity. The people who are prostitutes or who have tremendous brokenness or marriages that just feel like they're totally falling apart because of the error and the sin and the decisions of the people involved with them, the people who deserve to be cast out, that don't deserve mercy are exactly the types of candidates that God goes after. Because it turns out everybody is broken. And the degrees of that brokenness we see is a huge deal between us and a prostitute like Rahab, and God doesn't see it that way. Jesus sees it as every person, someone who is in need of a savior because every person is a sinner. We see a few chapters later what happens next in the story, and. In Joshua chapter six, it says, when the people heard the sound of the rams, the horns, they shouted as loud as they could. So basically the nation of Israel is told, you're gonna march around with the marching band, the city of Jericho seven times on the seventh day and the city walls are gonna collapse. Suddenly the walls of Jericho collapsed and the Israelites charged straight into town and they captured it. They completely destroyed everything in it with their swords, men, women, children, young and old, cattle, sheep, goats, and donkeys. Meanwhile, Joshua said to the two spies, Keep your promise, go to the prostitute's house, bring her out and all of her family. The men who had been spies went in and they brought out Rahab, her father, mother, brothers, and all of their relatives who were with there. They moved her whole family to a safe place near the camp of Israel. Second thing we see is God runs after her, but he also rescues people with labels, that God rescues people with labels, that no matter the story in your life, God is a God who can rescue people through grace and rescue people with labels. I mean, think of what just happened inside of the city. God saves one person and her family. If God was gonna destroy Dallas or Plano or whatever city, and there was one person that he was gonna protect or allow to live, who do you think it would be? I mean, I would guess like, you know, some priest or some some little old sweet grandma who you know, gives all charity to the poor. 
God saves a prostitute? Why? Because God saved Rahab by grace through faith, just like he saves today by grace, which is undeserved favor through faith. God works in a similar way that he worked then. She didn't deserve to be saved. It doesn't tell us that she gave up prostitution and then she was then saved. She was saved by grace through faith. Now, what is grace? Because people throw that out and make it synonymous with mercy. Mercy and grace are very different. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is not getting what you deserve and getting something you don't deserve. I remember my son when I was four, when I was four, my son, when he was four, was acting up and I came home from work one day and my wife was like, hey, he's in the other room. You need to go talk with him. He needs a spanking. He's in trouble. He'd been acting out or hitting his sister or just tale as old as time. And so I go in the other room and I sit down with him and I am asking him what happened. And I am telling him, hey, you know that we're gonna have to give you a spanking. And it hits me, I'm gonna use an object lesson right now. And I'm going to display what God's grace is like in our life. Parent of the year, dad of the year right now. So I explained, hey, I'm gonna give you grace. You deserve a spanking, but I'm gonna give you a grace. You know what grace is? Grace is getting something you don't deserve and not getting what you deserve. So I'm gonna spank myself and I hit myself as hard as I can. And I'm gonna give you a piece of candy. And I'm thinking, man, I, this is, I should just do parenting lessons for the night. <laughs> and it kind of backfired on me because now every time that he gets in trouble or for a long stint, he was like, I want grace, please, I want grace. Spank yourself, spank mommy, please, I want grace. But my point is that grace, just like Rahab received, is getting something you don't deserve and not getting what you do. That she didn't get destroyed, she got welcomed into the people of God. She's saved by grace through faith, just like us. What is through faith? I mean, she declares a pretty profound statement of faith, which is why I think over and over in the New Testament, she's given as an example of faith. Why do I say that? Well, remember, Rahab is living in the most fortified city at the time. She's living in a city that people would travel to just come see as a wonder of the ancient world. This is, this is amazing, impenetrable. And she sees these group of people basically living out, camping in the woods, living in trees, and she knows they're gonna come take us out. This city that everyone thinks is impenetrable, infallible, will stand for forever, it's not gonna last. And the one true God is on their side. It's an amazing statement of faith. And that faith is the way and means by which she was welcomed into the family of God. The same is true today, that God saves by grace through faith. He gives us what we do not deserve through trusting in the promises of God, through trusting in what Jesus did on the cross, dying in our place. Anyone who, by faith, trusts in what Jesus did on the cross, dying and resurrecting as the payment for their sin, is welcomed into the family of God, is placed into relationship with God. As I mentioned, Significance of Rahab is, is pretty profound. Honestly, it was astounding to me studying it this week. She's mentioned in multiple occasions, this Canaanite prostitute. The New Testament repeatedly points to her as an example. James, who is the baby brother of Jesus in James chapter two is one example of this where James is talking about faith and he gives two illustrations or two examples of faith as he's communicating to the audience he's writing to. He says, Father Abraham, you would expect, of course, you're gonna be Father Abraham. He's the father of our faith. He had many sons, Abraham. Of course, you're gonna to point to him as faith. And then he gives another example. Who's gonna, is it gonna be Noah? Is it gonna be Moses? Is it gonna be Joseph? Joseph had a lot of faith. It's Rahab, a Canaanite prostitute, 
He says this in James chapter two, verse 25. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. And if that wasn't enough, you go to what's called the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. And the way that they mention her is shocking. Hall of faith in Hebrews 11 is basically the uh, who's who of faith examples in the Old Testament. So of course you're gonna expect, they're gonna mention Abraham, which they do, and then Moses and Isaac and Jacob, and they bring up Rahab. And then it's interesting who they don't bring up or who they say, we don't have time to talk about. It says this, by faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And you're gonna bring up Rahab? This woman who was in the hall of shame, or the house of shame, living in a brothel is now in the hall of faith. And then it says this, and what more shall I say? I don't have time to talk about Gideon or Barak or Samson or Jephthah or David and Samuel and all the prophets. What do you say? You don't have time to talk about David, the greatest king in Israel? You got time to talk about Rahab the prostitute, but you don't have time to talk about King David, the only person in the Old Testament called a man after God's own heart, but you got time to talk about Rahab? She was seen as a woman who clearly God loved, as a woman who clearly modeled faith. And that faith led to her being rescued because God is a God who rescues people with labels. There's no story too far gone or too far broken for God to rescue and redeem here this morning. And then finally, the favorite, my favorite part of the story says this, so Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute and her relatives who were with her in the house because she had hidden the spies Joshua sent to Jericho. She lives among the Israelites to this day. That at the time this book was written, she had moved into the nation of Israel. She lived with the people of God to this day. That she's saying, yeah, she still lives. She's down the street and go meet and see Rahab today. God runs after people with labels. He rescues people with labels and he rewrites people's labels that God can rewrite any story for his glory. And her relationship with Jesus is ultimately the defining characteristic of her life. God rewrites her story and now she becomes not the prostitute, but someone who eventually would give up prostitution, stumble into a man and become part of the family tree of Jesus. God would rewrite her story. What do I mean? Well, as I mentioned earlier, she goes to the nation of Israel, becomes a part of the Jewish family. One day she is introduced or bumps into a man by the name of Salmon. We're not told how they meet. Maybe it was jewishmingle.com or who knows, but he says, man, I'd like to take you to lunch. They go to lunch and first comes love, then comes marriage, then comes Boaz in a baby carriage. And her story becomes not Rahab the prostitute, but Rahab the parent. That God rewrites her story. And not just that, she becomes Rahab, the great-grandmother of King David. That she becomes a woman who is chosen by God to be in the royal lineage of the King of Kings. Which means God doesn't just rewrite her from prostitute to parent, he rewrites her story from prostitute to princess. Because she becomes the great-grandmother of King David, the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus, the savior of the world. Think about that. There were hundreds of thousands of women around her age that God could have chosen at that time, 
more deserving women that God could have chosen at that time to marry Salmon, to be a part of the family tree of Jesus. And yet God goes out of his way to have a prostitute? That Jesus would go to the cross with the blood of a prostitute running through his veins. And Matthew, of course, would go out of his way to highlight because our God is a God who runs after people with labels and can rewrite any person's story and label. And the most significant defining characteristic of her life is no longer her prostitution, but the fact that she is in the lineage of Jesus himself. I mean, think about it. If somebody had a problem with Rahab, think what King David would say. He's like, man, that's my, that's my great grandma. I don't know what they called him back then. We've got today all these different random names for grandparents. Or it's like, it's my Mima, my Papa, my Hee-Haw, and my, whatever her name was. It's like, man, that's my great Mima. Great-grandmother of King David. Jesus is called son of David. It's an amazing story. And what's interesting is her story is, I mentioned, rewrote from prostitute to princess because that's what God does over and over, that he takes the prostitute and he makes her princess. He takes abused and he makes it whole. He takes depressed and he brings joy. He makes the porn addict pure. He makes the failure experience newness in him. He brings the divorcee and he makes restored. He does it over and over because God rewrites stories when we surrender and trust in him. Probably one of my favorite things, and I'm about to land the plane, about Matthew's inclusion of her. Knowing Matthew's story and knowing Matthew had spent many, many years in brokenness and shame and feeling like an outcast and feeling like, man, if God even is there, he doesn't want anything to do with me until he met Jesus. And then he sits down to write the genealogy and he does something really profound when it gets to Rahab. Every time in the Bible Rahab is mentioned, it's connected to her label. Rahab, the prostitute except one. Matthew sits down to write the lineage of Jesus and he's writing out and he says this in verse five, Salmon, who's the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. That's it. His mother was Rahab. Not Rahab the prostitute. His mother was Rahab. Perhaps it's because Matthew knew when you step in a relationship with Jesus, the most significant thing in your life is not the past abortion that you've had or the past divorce that you had or any present brokenness. The most significant thing is your relationship to Jesus. And in heaven, she won't be known as Rahab the prostitute. She'll be known as Rahab the righteous. Rahab the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. And in heaven, whatever story and baggage you carry, if you trust in Jesus, if you have trusted in Jesus, you can know the most defining characteristic of you is not the past, the present, the sin. And God wants you to experience freedom from those things. And we want you to be able to bring those into light. And we want to care for wherever you're at in your journey. But the most defining characteristic, just like Rahab, is where you stand with Jesus. And maybe you're here this morning and you have never trusted or stepped into a relationship with Jesus. And the fact is the reason you are here is because that same God who went after the prostitute, who toppled the walls of Jericho, who became a baby 2,000 years ago, has been chasing after you from the very first breath you took and will be to the very last one you take, to the point where he would give his own life and die on the cross so that you would by faith trust in him as the payment for your sin.
And what's further telling is we're told, take the scarlet rope. Anyone who is covered by the scarlet rope will be saved. It's very akin to what happened in Passover or when Moses led them out and there was this plague where they were told, hey, put the blood of a lamb over your door and anyone whose door is marked by the blood of a lamb will be saved. It's also further akin to anyone who is marked by the spilt blood of Jesus himself will be saved. Only those who are marked by that spilt blood. Have you trusted in that? This tree, there is no way for it to be reconnected to the source of life. It's an impossible thing for any of us to try to then go and put it back and reconnect it to the roots and give it life. But God has in Christ done the impossible and allowed for anyone in our world today, in the room today or online today, to be reconnected to the source of life, which is God. And that way is through Jesus. And he has extended the rope of the scarlet spilt blood of Jesus himself to all who will receive and trust and accept in that. Thanks for listening. We pray this message encourages you on your journey with Jesus. If you found this message helpful, feel free to share it with others and leave us a review. To learn about City Bridge and how you can take your next faithful step with Jesus, check us out online at citybridgechurch.org. You can also follow us on social at citybridgecc. See you next time.